The Deep Dive with Nick Baby. Welcome to the Deep Dive with Nick Babel. I'm your host, Nick Babel. Uh, today, my guest is film director, producer, and writer, Steve Moon. Steve, thank you for doing the podcast. Oh, the, you're welcome. Thank you for uh, thank you for having me on. It's an honor. Thank you. Um, so, according to your IMDb, which uh, you know sometimes they're accurate, sometimes they're not, but um, you've directed 25 films. Uh, what got you into film directing? Oh, wow. Long story short is I did not know what I wanted to do for a living. Um, I was, I was always, I was always smart, I guess, or intelligent or intuitive or something growing up in high school and college was just such a struggle. I was always good at writing, creative writing. Even going back to the first grade, I wrote a little book called Salt and Pepper, which is still in my elementary school. It's about two dogs, one showing off for the other. So I always had that creative thing. And I was always, um, I like Shel Silverstein. So I wrote a lot of kids' poetry, tried to get that published. So one thing led to another. And um, I guess I was writing commercials. All right. So I majored in graphic design, graduated in 93 in Birmingham at UAB. But I was always a better copywriter. So every time we had critique, my graphic design was terrible, but my <laughs> copywriting was great. So they're like, you need to go into advertising or something that involves writing. So fast forward to around 96, I just started writing scripts and screenplays and things. And I had about nine different agents that I was working with remotely from Birmingham, but they were in LA and I was just trying to find a writer's agent. And so, uh, about a year and a half or later or so in 97, that must be 95. So in about 97, my then wife, I'm remarried now, which is not really crucial to the story, but my then wife, she looked at the trailers that were coming on TV of a movie called Firestorm starring Howie Long. And it was about smoke jumpers. Oh, yeah. And, and I was like, that's that's my movie. That's that's my script. So the more we saw interviews with Howie and the director and people like that, like somebody stole my movie. So we went uh, to the movie theaters in Birmingham over the summit and and watched it. And not only was it my movie, they used some of the characters' names in my movie. Although my, I'm more of a drama. I'm a drama person. I'm not drama queen. I'm just a drama person. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not a diva, trust me. Uh, but they are in the business. Uh, but uh, mine was more of a Kevin Costner type, you know, a Dances with Wolves. It, paid, it played, my script paid an homage to the first recorded smoke jumper that recorded a bat built a backfire uh, and you have to forgive me if i stammer i had a stroke four years ago so sometimes it takes me a while to find the word i'm looking for oh no problem uh, anyway so uh so it was based off of that and then it was based off of you know the lineage of that family and keeping smoke jumping in the family but yeah there was in the 1950 i think 54 there was the first recorded backfire that was lit to fight forest fires and that's how smoke jumping came to be so i wrote that script they directed it more as an action film. Mine was a drama, so I tried to sue. Long story short is the Writers Guild gives you three uh, free pro bono lawyers through the Writers Guild of America, and they said, who are you going to sue? Are you going to? You don't even know which agency. You don't even know if it was the janitor that took the script out of the garbage can. So <laughs> I did a lot of praying, and I'm like, you know what? I, I've been to five different colleges just to graduate. I, I feel like God is telling me, all right, you're – you have a gift, for lack of a better word. You, you have, you, you know your work is good enough because it's out there. 
So then fast forward two years later, I met with the director of Boys Don't Cry on a conference call with her and her director of photography. And they just gave me tips on how to get started doing an independent film or how to get involved with it. So I wrote my first independent film, did some horse trading with an actor that had a camera. And then I met a director of photography, the one that I still work with 20 years later. He uh, was the DP of my first film. He was my editor. Uh, to this day, he, he was my editor and director of photography of Out of the Fight. So we've been together 20 years. We know each other back and forth. So I learned how to do independent, basically on horse training. Let good actors with good equipment come in and help, hopefully make a good movie. Right. First movie was terrible. It was called Under the Sidewalk Moon. But um, it got me recognition from a New York International Film Festival. <clears throat> they only um, showed New York uh, filmmakers, but the lady was from Tuscaloosa. And I happened to have my film screen at the uh, Bama Theater in Tuscaloosa. And she found me online and she said, I didn't know anybody in Alabama was making movies. I said, yeah, well, I'm, I'm trying. So she introduced me to the industry. So from then, I started just writing my own indies, still producing, still directing. Uh, like most people start out as a PA, a uh, production assistant in the business. Right. I started out as a writer, director, and producer and kind of learned all the ropes. Well, so by the time I had done several films, uh, and then I'll hush after this, uh, the Alabama, uh, state of Alabama passed a film incentive package. So that now if you make a movie in Alabama, you get 35% of your uh, expenditures back in the form of a rebate. I think it's a rebate. It might be, um, it's not a refund, but it's a tax credit. So right. you really can entice filmmakers to come to the state. So finally, and I'll sum up with this, is uh, networked with so many people in Los Angeles and New York and all across the globe, actually, Italy and India and places like that. But there was a guy from uh, L.A. who decided, you know what, I'm going to come to Birmingham or I'm going to come to Alabama, I'm going to make a movie. He calls me and he says, hey, Moon, that's my last name. He says, hey, Moon, can you come down to Mobile? I need you to work on a Nicolas Cage film. And I'm like, I, I know what I'm doing. I, I know how to do all this, but I've done it on a smaller scale. So, uh, you know, I, I worked in the art department. I did props. <clears throat> Excuse me, a lot of dust out here. Um, but I, I worked on props on that movie. It was a Nicolas Cage film called USS Indianapolis. Uh, I got some great experience. And uh, the producer was so nice to let me fail because in this industry, you know, you live and die by the last job that you had so that you can get another job. But apparently I did an okay enough job that even to this day, I don't know how many years later, 12 years since I've known him, 12 or 15, and I still work with him and I'll still work for him. And, and he and I talk probably once a month and he still brings movies to Alabama and now he's brought more films to Alabama so I've been able to get my crew that had, you know, the limited experience that I had. I brought them on board and said, look, we've got to impress this guy because he's bringing, you know, $5 million, $6 million movies to Alabama. It's the same thing, just a bigger budget. You know, yeah. we're still doing the same work, but there's more expectation, but we can still do it. So we impressed them enough that now we have, you know, we can do in Birmingham, maybe four films deep. And then we need to start borrowing from like Atlanta, um, Nashville places like that but yeah we have a good crew base now and and then we're banging movies out nice and you kind of answered this my next question a little bit with that but you know with directing writing and producing is there one aspect that you you feel like you like the best I mean it sounds like you like the writing I it's it's such it's it's a it's it's hard to answer that question because they're two and it's apples and oranges I love writing because 
Number one, when you're writing, two parts of writing. One, you become the characters that you write for. Because a lot of people say, well, you know, you should make your character do this. Well, I won't know until I get to that part what my character is going to actually do, which translates to directing because um, I've been on sets, where, and I'll go ahead and say it. We can talk about John Travolta. I've been on sets with John Travolta where he'll look at the director and say, you know what, I don't think my character would do this. I think he would do this. So I'm learning by watching these other directors and actors that everything's organic. So yes, I love writing, but by the time I start a script, by the time I'm through with it, it's like, I didn't even know I was going there with it. Yeah. Um, and then when I direct, I love directing because directing is, it's like, I'm nothing. I'm the orchestra. I, I, I'm the band leader. The orchestra is, is the cast and the crew, and they're the ones that make everything happen. I just get with Joe, my director of photography, and say, Joe, okay, this is the shot I want. Make it look pretty, and he makes it look better than I ever could. And I just kind of sit back and watch. And what I've learned the most, though, that you haven't brought up is editing. Editing is uh. everything. That is where the magic, that's where the story, because you can have the greatest script, the greatest director, but not a good editor, and all of a sudden your story doesn't make as much sense. You don't have the reactions that you're looking for, or you don't have enough uh, foreshadowing or too much foreshadowing. So um, a lot of it's in the editing, and I am not an editor. <laughs> I'm not an editor. Yeah, I um, I have a little bit of a background in uh you know, I have a broadcast journalism degree and I, I kind of like you're like you were telling me at first when I went to college, you know, a lot of the people in my classes were into the on air stuff. You know, they wanted to be sportscasters or newscasters or and I realized a couple semesters in I was not good at, at that particular stuff, the on air stuff, but the writing stuff came really, really natural to me. And I was always the highest grades in the class on that stuff. Awesome. So awesome. I, um, you know, it, even though it wasn't, my degree doesn't say, you know, print journalism, that's, that's kind of where I went with it, but you know, you never know. And uh, I remember editing, you know, that was always a difficult part and you're right. Like a, People don't think about that. They think the director makes the movie, but there's reasons they give awards for those editors. And it's... Editors and sound mixers, my gosh, because people don't realize half, not, probably probably 90% of the sound other than the actors is not live sound. You know, if you're on the beach and you watch seagulls, guess what? Those aren't seagulls that you're hearing. Those are seagulls that somebody downloaded and yeah. put in, in post-production. So yeah, the editing is that's that's you win the award. I'd rather I'd rather Joe win an award for editing than me directing any day of the week. <laughs> um, so your IMDb also said that you've have four films completed um currently. One three point three miles, one called Chamber, one called Creek, uh, and one called uh oh maybe I spelled this wrong shoot the movie is that there? <laughs> oh yes okay go yeah keep going um so i guess my question is can you speak about any of these films yet and is there release uh, dates on them yeah i will and I, I like what you said earlier when we first got on air i guess we say on air when we first started is uh imdb yes can be fake or can be not fake um on my imdb i don't list a lot of stuff of what i do behind the scenes uh, cause technically 
I guess technically I would be a co-producer on a lot of these projects that come here, but um, because I'll set up the production office, I'll, I'll, I'll get the crew ready to be hired. You know, they always call me, hey, Moon, is so-and-so available? Is, is Kevin available for this? Or is Montana available for this? So um, to me, yeah, if, if he's listening to this podcast, which I know he is, I'm going to say, yes, that does make me a co-producer because I'm doing those things. I'm helping file the tax incentive with the state and do the hiring and, and everything that kind of a producer does. But, um, you know, I just I'm honored enough that he wants to just hire me. So I'm just putting that out there and getting that over with. Uh, so. So, yeah, there's a lot. And a lot of times like and, and I'm not an investor, but a lot of times you will not see an executive producer listed anywhere on IMDb because they don't want to be bombarded with. Oh, I see you funded this movie. Well, I've got a script similar to it. So there's a lot of re- there's a lot of times there's reasons why you don't put everything on your resume on there. But yeah, back to your question. And one of these one of the other side effects of my stroke is I have very short term memory problems. But I'm, I think I've remembered everything you asked. Three point three miles uh, in post production right now. Talked to Joe about it. He's editing it, just smoothing out some of the audio right now. We have uh, buyers because in this industry, you have sales reps and the sales reps are like anybody else. They get a commission. So if they like your film, they want to sell it. Well, this one had Michael Perret in the lead and Michael Perret. I've loved Michael Perret for years. He's an awesome actor. Eddie and the Cruisers. um, What was the other one? Uh, Because I saw Streets of Fire. Uh, Eddie's just a great guy. And so we, we had a mutual friend. And so my friend in L.A., also, his name's Michael. He's like, hey, my friend Michael Bray would like to be in your film or would like to work with you or however we got connected. Michael right. Henderson connected me to Michael Bray. So um, shot that one and uh, great little film. Um, it's got a little plot twist at the end. I won't say too much about the film yet since it's not released. Yeah. But the way release works is as soon as somebody buys it, the distributor has the option of putting it in theaters or putting it online. And right now theaters are kind of dead. The past mm-hmm. five did not kill the theaters. The past five years have killed the theaters because the younger generation, the millennials, they're not going out anywhere. So they're watching everything online. But what's happening is the subscribers are now pumping in, you know, over, I've heard upwards of like $42 billion a year with the subscribers. So you right. can sell a film to like uh, Amazon Prime, Netflix, any of those, and and your investors make their money back, and you can have royalties that are always coming back depending on what your distribution agreement is. So we have we have that one lined up uh, to be sold. There's one that you didn't mention called Ocean. Ocean is completed. Uh, it's a fun little film that we shot in four days because Joe and I were bored and we didn't have a script. Like we said, let's go, let's go to the ocean, let's get a boat, and let's uh, have two women stranded on a boat. That don't know how they got there. All they know is the night before they were at a bar and they met two CD characters who may or may not have spiked their drink. So um, we did that with no script and it's doing well in all the festivals. And now we have uh, buyers interested in that. Shoot, I can tell you everything in the world. And I'll be quick about Shoot. Shoot is just a fun little project that we're not trying to do anything with. This is just a bunch of actors and locals and one man in the camera, so to speak. And what we're doing is we're kind of paying homage to a bunch of old 70s movies, kung fu movies, um, nice. a Saturday Night Fever, race car movies. Um, uh, what's the one like um, Cannonball Run, that type thing. And what yeah. we're doing, we're make. this is hard to explain. The actors that are in the film are actors playing actors. So it's a film within a film. So technically, 
Karis Lamb is the actress that I know that lives here. Karis <laughs> is playing a girl named Tia Bastone, who is an actress in real life, but the movie shoot that Tia Bastone is in, she's playing a character named Violet. And then behind the scenes, we uh, take the camera and we interview Tia Bastone and we ask her, hey, how'd you like making shoot? What was Violet like? So it's kind of just a play off of actors playing act, playing characters. Yeah, <laughs> so sounds shoot, shoot is just fun. It's a way to blow off steam. And then the other one that you mentioned, I don't remember. Um, let's see. Uh, Chamber? And uh, Chamber was one that we did. Uh, and again, this was one man in the camera. This was last year, right when, um, well, during the middle of COVID. This was all when everybody was quarantined. And it's uh, kind of a throwback to, um, well, I can't think of the name of the movie right now, but basically what Chamber is, is uh, a man has abducted a woman and has put her in her basement, in his basement. And he's spying on her by watching her through the uh, cameras that are set up on his laptop. So the actors never see each other except for the end of the movie. So you have one actor that's upstairs watching, or one character that's watching on the laptop, and she's stuck in there for like, you know, seven months and she doesn't have a way to escape and then finally at the end of it when they do see each other she crafts a way to escape so that one we're trying to sell um but it's hard to sell when it's a no-name actor and that's not an offensive term to everybody that's listening but when you don't have a name it's hard to sell them. right so you try to use the gimmick so the gimmick we use is we shot this under quarantine um and the two actors never met or never were on screen together until the very end of the movie oh. <laughs> So there, that's that. <coughs> I'm in Birmingham. I have lots of pollen. I don't, I don't know where you are. <laughs> I'm up in uh, central New York, but okay. all right, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm in the, I'm in my uh, computer room, so leaving all that stuff outside. <laughs> I, I work outside, so I like yeah. being out. It's probably a lot warmer down there too. Uh, tonight it's going down to I think forty. Oh. Uh, today high was around seventy six. It was beautiful. But, um, yeah, just, just get rid of all the pollen for the next two or three weeks. Yeah, this is a, the rough time of the season for <laughs> Yes, sir. <laughs> um, so, like I told you before, this, uh, this podcast is called The Deep Dive. So we're going to take a deep dive um, into, you know, it's a, it's a heavy subject. So anybody listening, if, if you got, you know, triggers to this stuff, you know, just be aware um, into the issue of veteran suicide and uh, PTSD, which also leads to, you know, veteran suicides. So uh, you directed a film called Out of the Fight. Um, it's streaming right now on Netflix or not Netflix on Amazon Prime. Um, I actually watched it yesterday. I was I was telling you it was. It was really good, and I, I genuinely, you know, I told you that off, off there, but I genuinely mean it. You know, I'm not going to give anything away, but I, uh, I thought you hit a lot of important parts of it, and it was just, it was well done. So thank you. Um, so what got you interested in working on this project about this specific issue? Uh, so I got. I got interested in this because I had so many friends that I went to high school with that we still keep in touch through the magic of Facebook and social media. 
and you just catch up with people and you find out everything they went through. Um, and again, you know, I was looking for something new to write and I'm friends with Judy Norton. She was in the Waltons uh, back in the seventies and eighties. We worked on a film together. So we just started talking and collaborating and I've got, I'm not military, but I've gone through depression that would cripple anybody. And it's not, I'm not comparing one to the other, but I would, my depression was so hard. I was sleeping 18 hours a day. I went through probably what is called the world's worst divorce. And I know everybody thinks that, but in 2004, I went through divorce, had a seven-year-old and a four-year-old daughter. By the time each was 18, I have seen them less than 300 days. That's less than one year uh, and since, since they were seven to the time they were 18. And I fought every losing battle in court and I had right on my side. I can't give my testimony without making my ex look bad. So I don't want to do that. But let's just say I, did, I didn't want the divorce and everything in life I ever want to do, I just want to be a dad. I, I love being a dad. I'm a stepdad now. Uh, the love of my life is somebody I actually grew up with. After my divorce, I'd gotten on my knees and just prayed for just a friend, just somebody I knew in a past life. And I ran into my best friend from uh, high school and I ran into the girl who I had a crush on when I was in middle school. So it just, everything it worked out, but um, I still, you know, I have a stepdaughter now that I'm trying to do things for and you know doesn't really want that because she has her own dad and then two daughters that live as the crow flies two or three miles from me and i can't even see them i can't go to their house and they're being pumped full of all these lies about their dad and and i just lose every time i wake up so uh, for like three years I, i wasn't working in the film business i just left my i just laid off from my last corporate job and that was years ago and so I just, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't move. And I'm like, this is the worst thing in the world. And I was suicidal three times. I, I don't believe in it. Uh, but my 13 year old stepdaughter literally took the pistol out of my hand when I was crying in front of, uh, right by the bathroom door, 13 years old. She does she hates me at the time. She, she doesn't care what I do, but she loved me enough to be, she didn't know if I was going to go through it or not. She grabbed the gun from me. And at that point, I started to get out of it. A lot of prayer. God, God will get you through anything and everything when people want. People will let you down. I don't care who they are. They'll let you down because of your expectations, because of what your needs are. So right. that's what you're writing it. And then I started thinking, I'm too self-serving. I'm sitting here writing a, a script called The Other Parent because it's about the other parent, the divorced dad that never gets the custody. So I started thinking about all my friends that went through the military and are seeing things far worse than I could ever see. You know, at least I get to see my kids. You guys are seeing your friends um, getting killed. You're you're seeing um, stuff going on in the military that you may not agree with and you can't say anything about. You're you're just in a situation far worse than mine. So long story short is I developed it into veteran suicide. And so Judy and I were going back and forth and we we got together with, we, I guess we say we partnered. We partnered with Mission 22, We Are the Mighty, TAPS, and several other nonprofit groups that are associated with um, veteran suicide. And I uh, got together with all these families. And all these families were just constantly now on Facebook and you, this is my information about my husband who committed suicide, or my daughter, or my son. And they were all sharing the same stories. And what I learned so much is yeah, my trigger was the divorce, not seeing my kids. But for these guys, it was just the everyday. You're every day over there. You have a purpose. You're serving. You're doing what you're supposed to do, what you're calling, what your gift is. And then when you come back, it's nowhere near the same, good or bad. 
it's yeah. not the same and it's never one trigger it's never oh i'm my, like my nephew my oh, my wife's side my nephew and you can't script this any better it's not in the movie but in real life my nephew was in iraq and him and two and his buddies were walking down a, a patrol literally my nephew had to tie his shoe so he stops with one of his friends ties his shoe and this other guy keeps going up patrol about 20 yards down the road boom steps up an ied blows him in half my nephew has to pull his upper torso I know we're getting graphic here, but he has to pull his upper torso. But that's not what set him into PS, PTSD because that was his job. Right. So what set him off was that was my purpose over there. And over here, you know, I can go to a grocery store and there's food right there. And I can turn on running water and there's water right here. And people just, they, the, all the families were saying the same thing. He just wasn't the same or she just wasn't the same. And you can't. Just like Holly, my stepdaughter, you don't see what's going to trigger that final moment because every day is just deeper and deeper into a funk that you can't get out of. Um, and so that's what we did. So everything in out of the fight that you see, even though, quote unquote, it's fictional, everything that you see was told to me by at least 50 families. We interviewed over about 200, but 50 is what we kind of narrowed it down to because they had the most common ground. So. Right. Um, the part about Joe and what you saw, that was true. The Barry situation, everything that you saw uh, happened. And the battle scenes, the battle scenes, except for the lead actor, all the battle scenes were done by a combat veteran group out of Mississippi. And I think that honesty that where it's, it's coming from actual stories comes through in the movie because it feels, it feels real. You know, you can tell that, that's how somebody could react to that, you know, like just the different ways. And I know you use a couple of different characters to kind of show different, you know, types, you know, the main character was kind of a quiet, depressed guy, you know, he wasn't yelling all the time or anything, but he was, you could tell he was keeping it in. And then, you know, again, I don't want to give too much of the movie away because I sure. think people should watch it. Um, but you had other characters that were, you know, the, you know, violent a little bit when they got home. Cause you know, that would happen too. When you're, when you're in a high pressure situation, like a war or a war zone, and then you come home and it's, everything's quiet, you know, I can see how you can, you know, just snap like that. And, you know, yeah. you showed a lot of that different stuff. And that was a hard, I, know, I think I know the scene, or the part you're talking about, because where it gets fictional is in real life, um, Randy Wayne, the actor that played uh, Jason Pate, the main character, he was never friends that I know of with the guy that played Barry. You know, Barry was another person. But for the movie, I wanted them to be friends. Right. Uh, because uh, TAPS, the organization, tends to put people that are in the same unit back into like, um, they'll send them on like a, a retreat for the weekend so that, you know, if it's somebody that you knew from your unit or somebody that knew of you, you'd be back together. So I'm like, okay, I can at least marry that into the script. I can make them friends, even though they were two isolated incidents. Um, but um, I was going somewhere with that, but yeah, yeah. It's, it's just, you handle things differently and you don't know how you handle it because you don't know what's going to set you off. And you don't even know if you're going to be set off. Um, but what I liked about the Barry situation 
and again, I don't want to say too much because I do think people need to watch the movie, is the respect that he had from that officer when he was working on his Bronco. Just the respect, because I learned from interviewing people, is they don't necessarily want to be listened to. Uh, you know, they don't want to sit with a counselor or anything like, like that because you're, you're, you're just rehashing things. Right. But just sometimes just understanding that I'm in a lost spot right now. Uh, and the way that that officer handled the situation with Barry, I think, is what most people are looking for is just let me get this. Let me get this out and just be there because the family unit is the one that if they if they if they're your support structure, most people are, are saying and I, I, I want to be general here. I'll be general. I think yeah. most people are saying that the family unit is what kept me from crossing any line uh, because there's times that even me again, PTSD, maybe from the divorce that my wife now has seen me overreact to things because oh, here it is Christmas and I can't spend Christmas with, with my kids for the 10th year in a row. And then I'll go off, but she just lets me just, just right there. She doesn't like, you know, the worst thing you can say is it'll be okay. No, it's not gonna be okay. Right. Um, you'll get through it maybe, but it's like, just be there. Just, just let me get this and know that you're still there is sometimes the biggest thing that um, that you can do. And that was one of the most predominant things that everybody in, had in common when I was writing this. It's just, and that's why I wanted the family in the movie to, because to me, Emily is is the strength of this film. And that's all I'm gonna say about that because I want people to watch it. But Emily, Emily represents, I think, what what people need in their lives when they get home. And Again, not to give anything away, she's a good actress. That she was really good. Jordan Jude, Jordan Jude, thank you. Go ahead. I just want to say her name. Yeah, she um she was really good. She was really believable in the part, and you know she didn't overact it or wasn't hysterical or you know she she acted like you would think a military wife would would act in that situation. And that's um. That's interesting that you say that because she was the first person to audition. And even though I went through the audition process, she was the first person to audition. I didn't really have to look at anybody else. I was like, this is Emily. And I told her that. And I believe she, there's one lady that lives in uh, Colorado. And right now, just her name, I can't retrieve it. Uh, but she lives in Colorado. Jason Pate was basically based off her husband. You know, obviously other people, the 50 people that we interviewed or 200, but, um, it was it was probably most loosely based on stories that she was telling me about her late husband. And I think that Jordan Jude talked to this woman several times during pre-production just to kind of get it uh, to get into her head and find out what was going on with her. Uh, but the one scene that she did where she uh, ends up on her bed, we'll just say that where she's sitting on her bed when she did that scene, she asked me, she said, just, just tell everybody just I'm not mad at them just to walk away from set and just Steve, you come in here for a minute. So I sat down on the bed next to her. She grabs my hand and she starts crying and she said, thank you for letting me find. And then the in movie business called finding the voice and the voice is not something you hear. There's something you feel. She said, thank you for letting me find the voice of this and letting me do this. Uh, so she had the biggest honor out of everybody. I think that was in the film of, of finding what you said that honesty uh, of, of being being real of you know of not being an actress of, yeah. of 
being Emily Pate. And not to take away anything from, from anybody in the movie, but, uh, you know, out of all the actors, and I recognize a couple of people in the movie that I'd seen in other movies. Um, the yeah, guy that played the... The guy that played the colonel or general, um, he's only in it briefly. I've seen I've seen him in a bunch of things. Yeah, he was in a movie with Al Pacino. What was the name of that movie? It was where Al Pacino, well, one of the movies where Al Pacino played uh, a mafia boss. Um, God, I'm, I hate the side effects of the stroke. Um, I just can't retrieve the word. I can see it out No, that's, that's all right. I mean, I think when people watch it, they'll they'll recognize him because he's been yeah. in, you know, he's been in a bunch of things. And um, Robert Miano is his name. I want to go ahead and get that out there. Yeah. Robert Miano, great guy. And um, I also thought the guy was really good. That was like the the head of the um, Pate's unit um, in Iraq or Afghanistan. The one with the beard. Yeah, the one that did that- the interrogation that. Not, again, I don't want to give. I'm yeah, trying to yeah. not give too much away, but the one that I thought he was very. He, he seemed like he was a soldier. You know, he seemed like a legit guy. If he was the one that is kind of uh, stocky with the reddish beard, uh, that was in a black t-shirt. That um, he's yeah. the one. He's the one that tells him to to go home. Yeah. Now, yeah, he, he is former military. Yeah, he's, oh, uh, it, I've, worked, I've worked with him several times. He's, he's a good it, guy, yeah. It comes he's through. Yeah, it comes through when he's acting. Um, and then there was Chris Mullinax that played um, Officer Mitchell. Uh, he He's local, but he's been working in a lot of things lately. He, you'll see him in movies with um, Morgan Freeman. Uh, I think he was in a Robert De Niro film. But he's he's local, but he's doing a lot of big stuff right now. Yeah, I, I feel like I recognized him too from from stuff. If you saw the latest Morgan Freeman film, um, again, I can't think of the name. Sorry, Chris, if you're listening, but the latest Morgan Freeman film that's out right now, he's in that, and I think he plays uh, the second or third lead in that. So um, oh. we we were blessed on this. Yeah. Um. So you explore the issue. Um, you you cover it pretty good with the uh, how some veterans cope by drinking um, and drug use. There's not really drug use in the movie, but it's the same in the same vein, you know. And a lot of the soldiers that you know return, not again to generalize, but you know they they use alcohol and stuff to you know cope with it. Um, was that a story that you heard a lot with the with all the interviews you did? Yeah, and it wasn't a self-destructive behavior, so to speak. It was more like a self-medicating behavior. Um, it was mostly alcohol. A lot of them turned to prescribed medicine. So the way that we did that is you don't really see the drugs, but uh, in one of the scenes you see him coming out and he pops a pill. Um, and that's when he, he washes it down. That's all I say about that one. Uh, I didn't really want to get into... I didn't want to Hollywoodize it because right. when I was talking to dis- potential distributors, the potential distributors said, yeah, yeah, this is a great story or whatever, you know, you'll make it yours, you know, like every other, other filmmaker does make it yours. But they wanted, this is a little side story. They wanted me to Hollywoodize it. I'm like, I can't, this is for the veterans. I would rather 
only veterans families see it that know about the movie, then Hollywood take it and veterans go to see it in the theaters and say, that is not how this happens. Because they wanted me to change the beginning and the ending to where, um, how can I say this? Where, all right, we know, all right, I can say this. He has a daughter. You know about his daughter. He has a five-year-old daughter at home. They wanted to play uh, a scene at the beginning of the movie where you see him becoming close to um, a tribe, for lack of a better word, or uh, a community out there that has kids. And there's a daughter, of course, that reminds him of his daughter. So there's Hollywood. And then at the end of the movie, he goes back. And he's back in that same village. That's the word I was looking for. He goes to the same village and the girl's there. But now it's a Hollywood ending that he has to make a life or death decision involving a girl, a bomb, and a cell phone. I'm like, no, I'm not showing. That's not real. That's not no. to anybody. So I, and, and it may have cost me a major theatrical run, but I don't care because I would rather be an honest story that any veteran could have directed uh, you know, because we didn't we didn't improvise anything. Everything that you saw, like I said, was real. Everything was is their story, and even the ending. Yeah, nope. All right, never mind. Uh, not talking about that. Okay. <laughs> and I and I will just say, and this gives nothing away, but I thought the ending was really good. And you can't, you know, I'm sure you feel this way too. Sometimes you can like a movie and then go the ending. Ah, shit. You know, they could have done something different. I thought the ending really wrapped it nice. And I again I won't give it away. It's not yeah. a big twist or nothing, but it's it's good. It you know it Yeah, um I, I want to say this. I can say this about the ending because this is the ending that didn't exist. When when you're doing uh independent films and you're limited on budget and time and things like that, there's two things that I want to address. One is we're talking about Robert Biano and he was in one scene. He was in two scenes. One of them was very powerful. We had to cut that because of timing and budgetary. I'll go ahead and say budgetary. Um, there was a scene that was supposed to take place before the one that we cut that tied those two together and tied the basketball court scene together. And because one actress couldn't be here when we needed her and we couldn't reschedule that we lost one scene that we didn't shoot that married the scene that we cut to the basketball scene. But I think it still marries okay but uh, the scene with Robert Miano that's on the editing room floor, so to speak, tied that together. But at the uh, ending, it was the same issue. TAPS, what TAPS does, like I said, they get members of the same unit together or they get other members together and they send them on a weekend retreat. And at the end of their retreat, they kind of give like, you know, if anybody wants to share a testimony, that's fine. But they'll get in a phalanx or, um, um, position. And I think... Uh, it's mythological. It's where you turn your back and your shield and you make a circle with all of the members in your unit and it keeps the arrows from mythology from hitting anybody. Uh, I think it's called a phalanx. And we were supposed to have a scene like that, but it wasn't budget that caused that. I couldn't get enough people on that day to actually commit because it was going to be all veterans for that. I didn't want anybody that wasn't a veteran other than the main actor. Right. Um, to be in that scene so i had extras that said they would do it i said no this is all about the veterans i want veterans so what the ending scene represents what taps does so i wanted to make sure that that i got that out there because taps is an incredible organization that puts you back in with what you're used to doing when you're overseas but you're you're with your homeboys and girls and um and there, there's no rules it's just you guys go out there and do what you need to do to feel better 
Uh, and, and that's and that's where that ending is based on. I just I didn't shoot it the way I wanted to, but um, but yeah, but he, all right. Yeah, but again, it's 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 funny trying not to to spoil it, but um, it just I thought it made it. You know, you were you were I, at least I was I was guessing what was going to happen, and it was a little it was like like a surprise kind of. But not, you know, not, not crazy, but it was a... Yeah, you know. it wasn't what you were expecting. Um, and you do need your Kleenex, I'll say that. Definitely. Yeah. So, um, at the beginning of the film, um, a statistic that 22 veterans commit suicide every day in the U.S. pops up. Um, what do you think needs to be done to lower that number significantly? Like, what are some things that we could be doing in the U.S. to, to help with that? The quickest and easiest answer that I have right now is not off the top of my head. It's from talking to everybody. Make this a non-taboo subject. Make this something that if you're in the military, that you can go to your superior and you can talk about it and not be worried about, oh, well, he's going to lose his career. We're going to send him back home because he's crazy. Or, uh, or even, you know, destigmatize the word crazy or nut, you know, be able to just say, hey, I'm not feeling right. I don't like what I've been through and and not feel like, OK, well, you're not a man. You're not a soldier. You're not you know a tough woman. You got to be able to say, hey, look, what we see does take its toll. Right. And so part of the stigma that it's it's no longer a taboo, because that's what the families are pushing. And even Trump. um recognized suicide, I think in his second or third year of office of uh, veteran suicide and wanted to make it more public. So that's the big thing is don't be afraid to talk about it. Suicide is not a bad word. It's a bad tragedy, but it's not a bad word. It's like, you know, this is, um, you can't see me, but I'm taking off my hat. I'm bald. It's a day is long. Bald is not a bad word. And I'm not comparing the two, but that's the main thing is let's be able to talk about it. And then when you get home, let's and, and I don't think you need, like, somebody assigned to people when they get home, like a psychologist or something like that necessarily. But I do think there needs to be, like, in some colleges or high schools, there's job programs. I think there needs to be some kind of aptitude program so that when people do come, because some people are serving their four years and they're done anyway, yeah. is find a place for them, whether it's a fireman a policeman, which is so hard now, they find something where they belong and they fit in and get them back into, because they all have a servant's heart or they would not be in the, there's no draft. They would not be in the military. They have a servant's heart. Find something for them to serve that they can get into. And then you just kind of gradually make that transition. Right. You know, I, I talked to a veteran friend of mine that um, served a couple tours in Iraq and um, I asked him when he got back, did, uh, you know, do they do anything for mental illness? Like, do they, um, or PTSD, do, do you, when you go to the doctors for that, do you have to pay for it? And he was telling me that um, the, they kind of, the VA kind of decides, it's like a scale, they decide whether the problems you're having was from being in the military or if you had them before. So it's kind of, and it's really tough with mental illness. Like, you know, 
I think what they could do is just pay for all that stuff. I mean, that's one thing. I, I think it, I think it's mandatory that it's paid for. I mean, you pay unemployment to uh, people that aren't working. I think it should be a part of of, of just society. And I would like a better word. I think, yeah, I, I totally agree. It should be paid for and it should be ongoing paid for. It shouldn't Definitely. be like, okay, you're healed now. Uh, we're not going to pay for it. And if you come back, it's out of your pocket. No, I think, you know, Congress is what paid insurance for life, paid for life. If Congress can get that, then surely we can do better for our boys and girls. Definitely. And like what you were saying about like, a, you know, kind of a jobs program for veterans, you know, this is kind of a little out of left field, but I always thought like jobs, like, for example, like TSA, instead of hiring like $16 an hour, pardon my French, and this is a generalization, fucking idiots if you've ever been through tsa why not hire why not that have that be an ex-military job who better to you know keep an eye on something like the airports than ex-military that knows what they're looking for i i'm with you and uh, i didn't interrupt you did i no no all right because here's here's three things and i hope i can remember all three here are three things that I want to see happen. And there has to be a way to make this happen. Uh, starting even with your podcast and, and just going from there is number one. Let's talk about the homeless real quick. The government should provide buildings, homes. You, you can find a building anywhere in any city USA that needs work. So you let the homeless live there, but they have to keep it up. The homeless veterans, they have to keep it up. They have to make sure that there's running water, that everything's clean, that the mills are prepared. For the most part, you're going to get mills donated by churches and things like that anyway. But let's give them a place where they have to be totally responsible for it because they want to be responsible. Right. Don't charge them anything. Just let them. You're 100% responsible for this building in exchange the government pays for it. All right, that's one. The second is the border. Put these guys on the border. Let them go to the border, and I'm not getting political about the border because, you know what, the Bible talks about refugees, and it talks about, you know, talks about a little bit of everything. Um, but, you know, let's, let's go control what's going on over there. I don't care what side of the political coin you're on because I'm an independent. And I'm, not, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about people listening. Hold on. I got to get in the car real quick. Sure. Um, but, you know, these are human beings. These are human beings coming across, and we have politicized what's going on down there. It's so bad now that we can't even get a president or a vice president to go down there, let alone the news, and show people what's truly going on. Put a veteran down there. A veteran, I guarantee you, is going to do what is right and what is moral. So do that. Give them a paycheck for going down there. Problems, problem not solved. But the problem is well on its way to being solved. And then the third thing, uh, shoot, I was going to say is I don't remember the third. I'm not worried about the third. Um, but yeah, those are the two things right now. I think that if you give those uh, veterans those jobs and those opportunities, you would see not only them doing better, but you would see the country doing better. Yeah. And, you know, just to add on your two points there, you know, I think the first one with the having them, you know, keep up the the houses and stuff it's kind of like um an fdr type of uh 
you know, infrastructure program. And I think that would be really good for, for veterans, you know, to, you know, put them to work. Like you said, they want to work, they want to do stuff, pay them, you know, um, and to your second point with the border, that's, that's exactly what I was talking about with the, with the jobs, with the, um, TSA, you know, so yeah, I, I think that would be another perfect job to have veterans working at the border, um, working with border control. Um, so yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, third one uh, are dead on. I mean, you know, it just makes my, like I was saying, I told you I had a buddy that was in Iraq. His job in Iraq was, or one of his jobs was being at the, the gate, letting people in and out. Um, you know, and he said it was constantly being careful to see if somebody had a bomb on them or was acting suspicious or, you know, sometimes they had to shoot people if they wouldn't stop. Exactly. You know, so that's the kind of people that you would want on the border because also with the military background, they got to be disciplined. And some of these guys that work for some of these agencies now, they want to be cowboys and stuff, you know, and that's, yeah, that, yeah, that's where you run into problems. If you, if you have a military background and you're, you know, used to, uh, following orders and a chain of command, you're less likely to make irrational mistakes, you know? And again, it goes back to that servanthood, that servant's heart. They're there to serve. They're not, they don't care what your politics are. Yeah. Everybody does to a degree, but they're looking at people as human beings and they're going to do, they're going to do what's right because that's what they've had to do their whole, whole career. If they're overseas. Definitely. Um, so my next question is, what do you hope veterans, veterans specifically, can get out of watching out of the fight? Wow, this this is going to be cliche, but but hope. Um, I think when they, especially when they know that this is based on actual events, and I could have taken some of the other events and gone a different direction with it, with maybe a little bit more harsh of a reality, but I, I didn't want to show that because people are going through that. This is what the possibility is. And like you said, uh, Jason um, Pate, uh, Randy Wayne's character, you know, he was more of the soft-spoken, he kept it all inside kind of character. But there's something that everybody can relate to, I'm hoping, in all the situations that I showed. Uh, and, and, and there is hope. Uh, there's hope in family. There's hope in brotherhood. There's hope. Even if you don't like going to support groups, there's hope just sitting in those support groups because what is it that Randy Mitchell, uh, Chris Baldax's character said, sometimes all you have to do is listen. Yeah. And to me, that's my best therapy. I also, I used to coach basketball for my community and I stopped right after my stroke, but my biggest thing is just being there for them because I couldn't be there for my kids. So if you realize, if you're a veteran and you're going through PTSD or you're suicidal, but you realize there's someone greater than myself that I can be there for, 
then that, I mean, the, the best thing you can do is be there for another human being. And I don't care in my situation. This is why I know I'll never commit suicide because there's always going to be a kid that I can mentor, a kid that I can coach, a kid that I can teach in Sunday school. There's going to be somebody because my, th my, my thing is for like the youth of today. There's going to be a kid that I can get useful offender by going to court with them. There's going to be a kid that I can try to get off drugs. And if people can see that you've got a servant's heart, that's why you're in the military. When you come home, yeah, you, you're carrying all this burden. But, but just listening to others and realizing, you know what? They have it just as bad, maybe worse, maybe not as bad. But, but they, need, they need an ear. And if you can realize that, wow, somebody does need you, I promise you, 100% of you that have come back from any war, any, any action, anything that you have seen, and I'm talking to all the veterans now, there is somebody out there that needs you. And I think that when you can see that, that, that that's a fact, even if you don't, if you, if you don't realize it, if nobody ever tells you, I'm telling you that you are needed. Because I think that's the, the most greatest thing that you can know as a human being is, is that I'm needed. If you wake up in the morning, you're needed. You go to bed at night knowing that you're needed. You can make it through unemployment. You can make it through a death in the family. You can make it through a divorce. You can make it whatever Satan wants to throw in. You can make it if you realize that God has you on this purpose because somebody needs you. And I've rambled on that one, but that that's my passion right there. Yeah, and you know, I don't think that was cliche because I thought the movie did a good job. It, it wasn't just one broad message of what could happen. It, it was a lot of different things. So that's important for, I would think, for a veteran to see is, you know, well, I don't act like this guy. Well, not everybody does, you know. But, you know, again, without giving anything away, I just thought you did a nice job of touching different types of, you know, how people deal with it when they come home. Well, well, thank, thank you for get, for that. And again, it's, it's because of uh, Judy's, <laughs> Judy's putting up with me trying to come up with a good script and then going through all these interviews and listening to everybody. Cause without her, I mean, it, it takes a team, no matter what, even if you're a writer, it takes a team to put it together. Um, I was going to say one more thing real quick yeah. is we're, we're working on developing a pilot kind of like still team that's on CBS. We want to do a pilot, maybe three episodes that we can try to get out on some of the networks. Cause right now on the business side of things is now's the greatest time in the world for a filmmaker, because you know, there's so many digital outlets out there and people are paying for inventory. They're paying for content. Yeah. So if you're a veteran out there and, and you're looking to be in the world that I'm in, as far as like acting or writing or directing or creating or whatever, you know, I'm working on a pilot. And if anybody, you know, is, is feels down and feels like, okay, I need to change. If they want to get in touch with me, then um, they can, they can do that. And we can, we can talk about the pilot because a lot of, you know, a lot of success stories can come from just watching a weekly TV series, as long as you keep it real. Yeah, definitely. Um, so we did, we talked about a lot of your upcoming projects already, but is there a website or a Facebook or anything that you'd like to promote for, that has, you know, what you're up to? Uh, yeah, the main one will be right now out of the fight. Um, facebook i don't i guess it's just called out of the fight or out of the fight movie 
you can find me on that. Send me a request. Um, New Moose unofficially is the name of my company, but the way the business world or the film business works is a production company is a bunch of freelancers. They get together and work on movies whenever a movie comes up. So mm-hmm. they can find New Moon Films on Facebook and find me that way. <coughs> it shows everything I've worked on from my beginning to where I am now. And uh, if anybody wants to get involved with anything, shoot me a message, send me a friend request. Um, and uh, I'll respond. All right. Well, Steve, Steve Moon, thanks for doing this interview with me. Um, you know, definitely stay in touch. And uh, when you have some new projects out, you know, we can do this again. I would love to be honored. And uh, thanks again. I'm sorry I was coughing. I was uh, should not have been in the pollen. I've been in the car now, so I'm doing better. <laughs> That's all right, man. Uh, all right, buddy. Thanks again. And have a good one. All right. You too. Thank you. All right. Once again, I'd like to thank Steve Moon um, for this uh, great interview. Um, Next week, uh, the first podcast I'll be doing, going to try something a little different. Going to do a solo podcast, which means no interview. Going to do a deep dive. Haven't totally decided the subject yet, uh, but I think... The preamble before the deep dive is I'm just going to talk about, you know, how how I got into doing the podcast and, um, you know, just kind of what led me, you know, with the with COVID and, you know, 2020 being the year it was just kind of maybe my journey um, that led me to this point. So. Um, hopefully that'll be interesting to a few people and I'll come up with something good for the deep dive part. Um, so tune in next week, um, Monday. And again, like I always say, like, follow, subscribe. And I still really haven't gotten any reviews on this. Um, so that would be helpful. And especially if you do it on the Apple Uh, It just kind of bumps up the podcast. Uh, All right. See you next week.